Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Paul Sands from Ignatius Press, and uh, today we're speaking with another one of our illustrious authors, Leonard DiLorenzo. Leonard, thank you for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Paul. It's good to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so Leonard is the uh, editor of a new book from Ignatius Press called The Chronicles of Transformation. It's uh, uh, a, a number of essays contributed by a number of people uh, looking at uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, so a little intro uh, about uh, Leonard. Uh, well, Dr. De Lorenzo is the director of undergraduate studies at the McGrath Institute for Church Life where he also serves as academic director for Notre Dame Vision, directs the Sullivan Family Saints Initiative, and hosts the popular radio show and podcast, Church Life Today. He holds a concurrent teaching appointment in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. He's the author of eight books, including Our Faithful Departed, Where They Are and Why It Matters, Model of Faith, Reflecting on the Litany of St. Joseph, and A God Who Questions, plus several others. He's also the editor or co-editor of additional books, <clears throat> including a, a volume on Dante, this one on the Chronicles of Narnia, and others. Originally from New Jersey, right? Uh, I was born recently. in Jersey, yeah. Born in Jersey, lived a little while in Tennessee, and raised in Southern California. So, <laughs> and now, and now, uh, now uh, um, I'm a Midwesterner <laughs> now, my friend. You know, I've lived yeah. in South Bend, Indiana, longer than anywhere else that I've lived. So I'm a yeah. Midwesterner. I think it's official. all Hoosiers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we got, uh, uh, you and your wife have, what, six children, right? We do. We do. Six kids. Yeah. yeah. You're in St. Joseph Parish there in South Bend. Correct. Yeah. Great. <clears throat> all right. Well, thanks again. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure. All right. So let's dive right in. So this book, Chronicles of Transformation, tell, tell me a little about how it came to be, kind of the genesis of the project. Sure. This began with a... A series of lectures and discussions and communal readings during the liturgical seasons, actually, of Lent and Easter. We did this several years ago. We had had a little habit of doing this at Notre Dame. We gather a community get together from our own campus, from the local community, and then bring people in digitally from across the country and across the globe to do some reading together during uh, these liturgical seasons to make a little bit of a pilgrimage out of it. And for this particular year, we chose the Chronicles of Narnia. We brought some folks in to give some lectures on each of these chronicles to accompany people's readings and discussions about the books. And that was really the beginning of what eventually grew into this volume, which is this dialogue, this conversation in this communal setting of a spiritual journey using Lewis's own chronicles as the sort of map for that journey. Then we added to it later on some really beautiful pieces of art that came into the volume, a series of illustrations from Stephen Barini, and then a original poem cycle from Madeline Infantine. So what came to be in the book itself were these collection of chapters, one on each of the chronicles, and then uh, this artwork that's put to it. Yeah, so it's a really, it makes the book a really interesting and extra interesting kind of dive into the chronicles because it's not just these scholarly essays, but like you said, there's this artwork and there's this poem cycle. And so it's uh, a, a very... Uh, uh, well-rounded 
you know, academic, scholarly, artistic sort of exploration of the Chronicles. Makes it- yeah, thanks for that. That's what we're shooting for. And even even though those who wrote the, uh, I have to give an apology for scholars now, myself maybe, you know, sort of included in that, like, even though the chapters were written by scholars and there's some academic treatment, it wasn't to take these Chronicles apart and analyze them or overanalyze them. Yeah. It's in a way to help us to recognize some of the deeper beauties and deeper themes so that when we return to the Chronicles, especially as adults, we're maybe better prepared to enjoy them. And that's really the point of it is to enjoy it. The whole spiritual journey comes from the enjoyment of Narnia itself. Great. Yeah. And then what what role did you play as editor? I mean, were you <laughs> selecting the selecting the folks to write to write the essays or or were you kind of shepherding the whole process or just kind of, kind of tell me about what role you what your responsibilities were? Yeah, so those things and some others besides. So uh, gathering together this this uh, group of folks who contributed to the volume and then working with each of them individually. It wasn't to create one single type of voice in the volume. There is some variety, but at the same time, we're all working together on a common project, which was to move from using Lewis's own terms from contemplation back towards enjoyment. And he says, contemplation is learning how to see something, to understand it, to appreciate it better. But enjoyment is really living in the thing. So you could imagine a beam of light that if you were in a dark tool shed, he uses this example, you could look at the beam of light and understand it and maybe even marvel at a little bit, but it's a very different thing to stand in that beam of light. And so that's what we were trying to do together was help people to stand in this light a little bit better. But then some of the other duties in response to what you're asking about was Um, Really, it was the idea of bringing in some of the art as well and working with those uh, artists, the the illustrator and the poet, um, helping them to kind of grasp the project and then giving them their creative space to work on this, giving some feedback on what they were coming up with, especially the illustrations. Um, So Stephen's illustrations, which are splendid and complex, are also really really thought provoking and really correspond both to the essay chapters and to the chronicles themselves. Um, and then there's all the, you know, the great work of working with you folks at Ignatius and making sure that this is as good of a product, if you will, as possible. And I'm when I got my physical copies, I was just overjoyed with how beautiful the volume is, which really? is to your credit at Ignatius more than ours. Uh, just the production quality was fantastic. Yeah. It's really a beautiful, a beautiful, uh, uh, volume there. So uh, I'm always curious, especially in a c- collection of essays like this coming from, uh, or, or uh, excuse me, being edited by someone who obviously knows a lot about the topic personally already. Um, but was there anything in particular that you learned from the, from the contributed essays that you, you know, jumped out at you or was particularly memorable or anything like that? There's so many things that I learned just from reading everybody else's uh, contributions. I can I could probably speak to each one. I'll just maybe give a couple of examples, like something that would be very obvious once it's pointing out pointed out to you, but you maybe didn't notice it until somebody said it was Peter Shackle and his uh, his essay on the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the third of the chronicles that uh, Lewis wrote. Has a very different beginning from the first two, and in fact. The first two chronicles, this would be Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian, had the exact same opening line. It's just kind of a flat-footed line. There were these four children, and it names them. But the third one starts in a very different way, and it starts with humor, in fact. And it starts with humor, and it's the beginning of satire. And what 
uh, Peter did in his essay showed us the way in which the voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is, you know, quintessentially a chronicle about journeying and exploration, was also a way of journeying and exploration for Lewis himself. He was moving into a new way of presenting these chronicles by bringing in some more of his humor, by doing a little bit of social satire, and also by really trying to develop mythology more fully. So that's the sort of thing I knew the Voyage of the Dawn Treader really well, but to have Peter kind of guide us through to see those changes in direction, I, would n I will never be able to think of that chronicle the same way again. That's just part of how I understand it, and it increases my, my ability to enjoy it. Yeah. Another example, you know, at the very end, uh, my colleague here, Anthony Pagliarini, he wrote um, the chapter on the last battle and the way in which he just showed us how so much of that chronicle has to do with the use and misuse of language and how our own humanity is tied up in the capacity for speech, but also the responsibility for right speech and the accordance of our words with truth or the attempt towards truth and he used some of joseph peeper to draw that out it was just fundamentally sort of mind-altering the way in which i now understand and grasp that chronicle and can dive more deeply into it from what anthony was able to bring to the fore so just a couple of examples and like i said i could speak to each one of the chapters to great length and what i learned from them well that's all right maybe that'll just pique the interest of the potential <laughs> that's, right. that's right themselves um <clears throat> So what, one thing that I find kind of remarkable after all this time is that you still encounter people who, who try to claim that the Chronicles of Narnia are just fantasy stories, mm -hmm. that there's no, that, that any, any kind of a connections or correlations to the Christian worldview or, or Christian faith are just incidental because Lewis happened to be Christian, you know, regardless of how obvious they might be or what he himself has said about them, you know. Um, so, so how would you respond to that? And does Lewis's idea of, I love how he talks about supposal, supposal, you know, supposal um, and does that kind of play a part in, in this whole thing? Yeah, I think you put your finger on it. His, uh, his understanding or his articulation of what this supposal literature is. So David Fagerberg, who writes the, the very first uh, chapter here, which is the introduction, you know, welcoming us yeah. to Narnia. Uh, he, he brings to our attention that the Chronicles of Narnia are not at all, strictly speaking, allegories. In other words, it's not that there's one thing here in Narnia that corresponds to the one thing here in our world, and it's just kind of like veiling this Christian stuff that could be unveiled once we know the, the secret or the recipe. Rather, he says that what Lewis was involved in by his own admission was what he calls supposal. And he, it's something like, suppose there was such and such a world. Suppose it was called Narnia. Suppose it had these kind of characteristics. And suppose it was in need of redemption. How might we suppose that world would be redeemed? Yeah. And so what he's doing, and this goes very much along with his, the development of his understanding of myth, he's creating in some ways a self-contained world in Narnia where all of the action and drama is happening therein except for this one other element, which is that the main characters in that world are drawn there from our world. And so there is always an opening and always a passage from this world to that world, and ultimately back from Narnia to this world. And I think that's the further point beyond the supposal, which especially for children, but even, us, even those of us who are adults who might be willing to have childlike wonder again, what happens in Narnia is meant to have an impact or an effect or 
an echo in this world of ours. We're meant to sort of try these things out there and go through this development, this challenge, move with the characters so that it does have some kind of bearing in our world, but it's yeah. not a strict one-to-one -one allegorical correspondence. And I think that's what makes it um, more perennially timely, right? It doesn't pass out of fashion. Um, we always find something rich and new there precisely because of the way in which Lewis constructed it. Yeah, and I think that's particularly interesting because that's often a criticism of Lewis, especially when people say Lewis on the one hand and Tolkien on the other. Yeah. They, this, this, they construct it by saying uh, Lewis was this slave of allegory who mm -hmm. said, you know, oh, if, if people don't, don't realize that the lion is Jesus, then I'll just be so upset. And Tolkien had despised allegory. But not only does Tolkien explicitly say that he that he that some, some of what he does is allegory, but also Lewis specifically says that a lot of what he does is not allegory. Correct. <laughs> it's the right. thing and it really broadens it. Yeah. Um, and Lewis did write, you know, straight up allegory, and it's almost unreadable. It's yeah. just um, the Pilgrim's Regress was is is an allegorical tale, and there's some things that are of interest in it, and some of his own uh, sort of ethical philosophy is going on in there. And that's, it's all too good, but you can't come back to it time and again, right? Like it, it becomes stale almost immediately. And maybe I'm being a little bit too harsh on it, but um, the Chronicles of Narnia have nothing of that quality to them. Like it isn't, it isn't allegorical. So the, the charge against Lewis that he's stuck in allegory just doesn't hold water there. And at the same time, there is, an appreciation for how allegory could have a place or allegorical elements within something else. And like you're saying, even Tolkien had a little bit of an appetite for it, though clearly the Lord of the Rings is not a straight up allegory itself. It's grand myth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So the Chronicles of Narnia, typically uh, seen as, uh, as children's stories. And of course mm -hmm. they are, you know, a, at least ostensibly meant to uh, meant to include, uh, you know, um, appealing to children. Um, but of course, they have plenty to offer people of any ages. Um, so, beyond being stories for children, are they deeper for adults? And do, do they do they offer adults something on a different level than they do with children, or is it just kind of broadly appealing? Hmm. It's a great question. It's a tricky sort of question because on the one hand, I almost want to say there's something deeper for children than there is, than there is there for adults. Hmm. And that sounds strange because you would think, well, the adults would be more capable of complex thought and seeing the themes. But I think we, we as adults, we get so fixated on our own skill or capacity to recognize patterns and themes and to deconstruct and say, well, this is what's really going on that the thing that we miss is actually enjoying the story itself being in it. And so even in my own, the chapter that I wrote, which is on the line, the witch and the wardrobe, the way I ended up writing it was kind of a reflection on the way in which my fi then five-year-old son received that narrative the first time I read it to him. And it was in fact, his responses to things that showed me what I myself was missing. Hmm. What I think there might be more for an adult then is in addition to what the children, what the child can receive from the, from the Chronicles, the adult might also receive this additional gift of being able, of, of being shocked into wonder again. And I think this is a distinctly adult problem. We stop wondering. 
we stop marveling. We get too stuck on being sophisticated or worried about our thoughts or having to make good use of this time that we yeah. don't yield to a narrative in the way that children almost naturally do. So that's what I think is additionally there for an adult is that additional gift of being shown again, what is it like to wonder, to yield, to be immersed in, to be delighted by, and not to have to just make use of something. Yeah, great. Yeah. Another point that sometimes comes up in talking about the Chronicles of Narnia or anything from C.S. Lewis is yeah. the fact that he was not Catholic. Yeah. You know, so he had this, sure. uh, I mean, he was a high church Anglican, you know, and he, he loved his liturgy. He loved his, 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 you know, contact with the sacraments and everything. Um, but, uh, you know, is there, so the, the Christianity that's present in the Chronicles of Narnia, is it that sort of mere Christianity or is there, or is there something distinctly non-Catholic about it? Hmm. I would not, I myself would not go so far as to say that there's something distinctly non-Catholic. I think that there is something of a sacramental vision that's there, though I don't want to, yeah. you know, put too much weight on that and, you know, double down on that too much. But there right. is a sacramental appreciation. Like you said, like as a high church Anglican, there would be a sacramental appreciation anyway. I think some of some of us who are Catholic might get a little nervous and what might want to either make him into a Catholic just to kind of comfort ourselves or critique him in the ways in which as a literary figure, he doesn't line up perfectly with, you know, Catholic doctrine here, there, or elsewhere, or whatever. We do that. If we do that with any of our artists, we're doing, uh, we're doing a disservice and something of, uh, an act of aggression against the artists themselves. Like we can't hold them to the same uh, standards that we would hold a, you know, academic theologian, for example, or somebody that's explicitly writing in a catechetical mode. Lewis might do some of those things elsewhere, but here, this is the artist creating an image of a world, creating a kind of narrative that nourishes, working more with images than with uh, discourse or doctrine straight up, as in a catechetical fashion. But from, from, my, from my perspective, I think that there is so much there in Lewis for all of us as Christians and also for non-Christians who are seeking after deeper, a deeper appreciation of our humanity, seeking after the real challenges of human life. I think it comes out of a gospel vision without having to beat you over the head with the, with the message that this is the gospel all the time. And in that way, he provides openings, windows for lots of different people to move a little bit deeper themselves and maybe even to move together towards something. And we had a bit of a, an experience with that, where this whole volume came from in that communal reading and that, that liturgical journey from Lent to Easter in that communal space. It brought in lots of different types of people into that journey, which was all for the good. All right, great. So uh, now we come to the million-dollar questions oh. that always come. You know, any any uh, deep scholarly conversation about the Chronicles of Narnia. Number one, do you have a personal favorite in the series? I rediscovered a love for the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the one that I wrote on. So that is my now has moved back into pole position. It dislodged the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which had moved ahead oh. previously. So the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So has it been consistently one of those two? For most of your I, life. 
I think, well, I actually didn't read the Chronicles until I myself was a young adult. I think I was in grad school even. Um, And Voyage of the John Treader moved to the front pretty quickly there. Um, But I rediscovered a love for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Great. And uh, do you even have a stance on uh, the the debate between the best order to read them, publication order or Narnia chronological order? I think I... Uh, for me, this is absolutely decisive. It's got to be the publication order. So the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe goes first. And yeah. there are a number of different reasons for this. The number one reason is that by putting Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe first, we retain the order of discovery. We discover Narnia along with Lucy. And you lose that moment, which is such an important moment, if you read The Magician's Nephew first. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think uh, if I remember correctly, Lewis one time someone wrote him and asked for the best order to read them. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think what he kind of landed on was basically however you want, but the last battle has to be last. <laughs> that, and that's absolutely <laughs> the case. Absolutely the case. Yeah. That was obvious. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to add about, about the book or about Lewis or about the Chronicles? I'm just so grateful to be able to bring this project to life and to share it with people. Um, it's not it's not a guarantee that when you have a project like this, you'll be able to carry it to completion. But to have a publisher in Ignatius, I'm really grateful for that, that they were able to partner with us in such a way like this. And then all the contributors to be so generous with their talents to bring it together. I I really love what this might be able to offer to people. And I hope that those of you who read it uh, find great treasure there and that it increases your own uh, spiritual nourishment gives you things to think about and maybe helps you to enjoy this masterpiece, the Chronicles of Narnia and other uh, literature a little bit more deeply. Great. Well, thank you again. Um, My pleasure. Everyone, everyone listening, be sure to check out the Chronicles of Transformation from Ignatius Press. It's available at Ignatius.com. Uh, check your local Catholic bookstore, always support them. And then also, of course, check out the great work that the McGrath Institute at Notre Dame is doing with Dr. DeLorenzo and and so many others there. Thanks again. Bye-bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.